monthly regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll also be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts coming to you directly from the city of Shanghai. I'm Bryce Whitwam and I'm Ali Kazmi. And in today's episode, Ali, we're talking trash with Richard Brubaker, founder and managing director at Collective Responsibility. He spent the last 20 years in Asia on hundreds of projects that have tasked with getting people and companies they work for aware of the issues surrounding sustainable growth. Richard is regularly speaking at leadership social innovation and sustainable focus conferences and today with us with thousands of listeners that we now have around the world over 5000 now Ali can you believe it that's incredible i don't know my mother i think has listened to our episode at least 3500 times so welcome richard and thank ha- you have i missed anything i think you might have missed out on the fact that both of you share the same school you went to the university of minnesota Oh, you went to the University of Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> As I spin the cup around. And Thunderbird, yes. Oh my God, you went to Thunderbird. Yeah, That's yeah. amazing. Okay, wow, welcome. Our school still survives. It survived, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know the whole story about Thunderbird, Ali? I don't. Please do, the, yeah. The um, management school that couldn't manage itself. That's exactly <laughs> it. That's exactly it. They went, they went into some serious financial trouble, and they were being sold to a for-profit university. You know, one yeah. of those West Hampshire University. Trump University. Something like that. Oh. Very much similar to Trump University. But thankfully, the regents at the Arizona State University did a deal. And now Thunderbird is a part of the ASU uh, organization. Yep. So it's great. Yeah, yeah. It's really good. It's nice. But it was a great school, right? Did you yep. enjoy it? Oh, enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, it was great. And the network is phenomenal. And everything we learned there was just crazy. It's great. So, uh, Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you went to Thunderbird. Mm. Well, tell us, a little, and more importantly, why sustainability and social innovation of all the things that you do? Why would you choose this, and why is China the place to do it? Well, thank you very much for having me. Short story long, been in China one month short of 20 years now, coming up on my 20th anniversary, my 20th birthday, as it were. Uh, started off here, thought I would you know, spend a few months in Beijing studying Chinese, could knock it out, go back home, get an expat job, come back, live high on the hog. Um, that was kind of the, the plan. The reality was, after my one month tourist visa was extended uh, 19 and three quarters years, uh, I'm still here. And I mean, I've had multiple lives here. So why, let me just start with like why I've been in China and why I've stayed here for so long is it's just the most amazing place to constantly reinvent yourself, not just in China, but also pre-COVID Asia. I was traveling quite a bit, working on very similar issues of sustainable development, growth, poverty alleviation, waste management, labor. I mean, all the issues that we've been seeing here as the city's been building and as the country's been developing, we are starting to see in Bangkok, Jakarta, Manila, and other places. So it was really exciting to kind of see everything happening here, participate, be surrounded by amazing people, and then actually start to to lever, export to, to export it up to the next 2 billion urban res, uh, residents, which are coming outside of China, India, Southeast Asia, like this is the next big growth that's going to happen globally. And so, you know, that was kind of like what kept me here is just constant excitement. My first jobs were all macroeconomic, finance related, helping companies enter China, buying up assets for, you know, manufacturing or real estate or 
whatever it may be. I did a bunch of market research. I did some sourcing and kind of in my fifth year, fourth or fifth year in Shanghai, or actually my second year in Shanghai, I got kind of bored of just going out to, to the bars and drinking. And I was just started setting up a volunteer events. And this is what hands-on Shanghai is. So it's a volunteer platform. We had about 25,000 volunteers every year. We've done upwards of probably three quarters of a million hours over the last 15 years. One of the first NGOs registered in, in China. That just came out of my own passion on the weekends to kind of serve the community. Uh, 2008, earthquake happens, 100,000 people you know, lost their lives. I mean, just eight provinces decimated by this you know, 8.1 uh, earthquake. I mean, we all felt it in Shanghai, which is the most ridiculous thing to me still to this day. One. It was like thousands of miles away. I was away. in this building, actually, when that happened. I remember the tower shaking. Yeah, I mean, you're, 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 like people were getting seasick up in like Plaza 66 and stuff. I remember I was working at an agency. Buildings started to shake. Mm. And everyone naturally ran for the elevators, which, of mm. course, no one you should really do on an earthquake. <laughs> but then I looked up, and the only people still sitting in their seats were Taiwanese. Because, of course, to... they know yeah, yeah. earthquakes. They happen all the time. Right. And these people realized that it just was a tremor, and yeah. there's no reason to freak out. Yeah. But, of course... For people of Shanghai, they've never experienced that before, and they're all like That's right. going yeah, the, crazy. The fact that that earthquake came from 2,500 miles away quickly reached everyone's ears, and you realize like that was a huge that was issue. A huge one. No, you're right. So yeah. that was the second. I was the second day where I was consulting with Disney English to launch their platform here. I was working on the real estate package, sitting in Shintiandi, and it was just like it was one of the most amazing platforms at the time to be working on. And I sat there for the next three months moving millions of dollars of equipment and stuff into Sichuan as part of my, my philanthropy CSR work, while at the same time during the day working on corporate work. And this is kind of where I made the decision to make a complete shift. So after that project with Disney English shut down, and I'd worked on a number of really great clients up until then um, on China entry only, I switched it to China sustainability, China social responsibility. And I ended up teaching at the China Year Business School. I was doing these consulting projects. And at the end of the day, the reason why that took off is like the next five years was like this awakening around the issue of economic development, environmental limits, meets resource limits, meets labor constraints, meets, I mean, all kinds of issues. And these are just failures and externalities of systems that were growing way too fast. And as a supply chain background person, I found that fascinating. Like I wasn't trying to say polar bears here. And I wasn't trying to convince them that climate change was real. I was like, just look out the window. Oh, yeah, you can't see anything because of smog. Oh, go down the street and let's talk about food safety. Oh, let's talk about the security of your children. Let's... So these issues remain very tangible and you can do real work in them. And that was also like the next bit was you could work on projects that had an impact where you could see the effort coming out. It wasn't like... You know, trying to it wasn't develop. like ad advertising business where nothing ever really gets done. You just write PowerPoint deck, or you do so much work and you're just churning out so much content. None of that really, you know, it's, none of it's as memorable as what you're doing. There's a lot of PowerPoint, <laughs> and and there's a lot of. I mean, you and I have worked on on similar clients, right? Like we've shared some clients we've over the years, clients, yeah. and I got to tell you, like some of those clients after five years are only now starting to do the work, because it, it takes time for a business leader to get their head around one, they gotta do something, two, they should do something, and three, then what to do. And I can scream to the heavens on some of these things. And I, I can remember some of my, like my best training that I was doing here for like a big food brand. And this is like the number one commercial guy for this very large food company 
just telling me sustainability is bullshit. I'm tired of counting cow farts. This means nothing. And basically what it, what it came to be was he spent his whole career and all his colleagues, there's 30 in a room, has spent their whole career building a company. And basically sustainability was an affront to that. You guys fucked up. And now we kind of got to go back a little bit and pivot. And this is a huge opportunity, but they didn't want to see that because they had three, four, five years left before retirement. Like, ah, we'll let it for the next people. Well, those next people are coming in. And guess what, Vince? You're... Your brand is diminished, and, and that sucks for some of these people, but you, know, you learn so much of that when you take someone who's from the West and is dealing with a very intangible relationship with these issues and brings them to China and tries to show them how tangible it is and why they need to make a pivot. And that's, again, like the clients that we've shared, eventually someone, usually from China or from Asia, will go, no, this is important and we have to do something. But you need to wait for the Western executives to kind of exit. And once they do, it starts to shift. Aren't a lot of these Western listed companies being also scored against their ESG initiatives and that's part of their annual reports and, you know, you're being scored and... So, okay, so from a corporate experience, when it comes to corporate sustainability, corporate social responsibility, there's a number of levers that will impact different firms. And I think it's very easy to broad brush and just go companies blah but in reality like you just do a basic cut b2b versus b2c coca-cola's relationship to their consumers is we need to do a campaign every six months every year constant constant well constant how how do you keep a a sustainability message on track for 15 years how do you make a single investment and get an roi that you can constantly justify and fund without having to change very hard for a company like coke and I'm, i'm not slandering coke here by any means but you put them against say eaton who's a large industrial company who builds factories and operates factories over 60 years and builds buses they put in a piece of equipment they save a piece of energy they, they look at everything as an investment over the long term they're not chasing a short-term consumer oriented what type product do they make what was the product oh they, they make making? airplane engines they make you know, hybrid bus engines. They make they make industrial equipment. But maybe it's the type of ca- it's the category of product that they right. So a B two B versus a B two C. A real estate developer or will look at that you consume in under a minute versus something that's going to last twenty years. Yeah, but I would so. argue most consumer brands, the way that they approach sustainability is vastly different than someone who does something B two B, and that could be an athletic shoe, that could be a, a food, it could be your bottles, it, whatever it is, because. They have to maintain presence in the consumer's mind. And the reality is that most consumers are changing their mind on what's important in sustainability. As we are kind of like sharing graphs and stuff earlier. Like it's plastic waste one year and it's carbon the next. And it's, it's those poor turtles the next year. And they're all real important topics. But if you are a brand, how do you maintain a consistency? It's very tough. So... When you split it out, a lot of them, yes, ESG is the new one. And ESG, for me, is just as important as regulation if it's done well. Because regulators can basically tell you, you do this. And investors can do that as well if they're doing it in the right way. Right now, ESG is very formative. There's a lot of people like, I want to be ESG, but they don't know what that means. So they're like, what's the basic that I need to do? And so they're still in that mindset. But the brand leaders in any category, in any industry. They know what ESG is. They've been doing 17 different reports for 20 years. And they are really, they're they're using that as a way to drive their company forward. And that's what ESG could do. Can we talk about that a little bit as well? Let's talk about ESG and and how that translates into China. 
because I did a little bit of work on mm-hmm. on sustainability sure. um, for a big car brand, and I remember a lot of that. What ladders up to an ESG report? Half of that completely not relevant to this right. market. Do you, can you just unpack that a little bit for us? And well, I I think one ESG is new in terms of a tactic in China, in terms of a tool, and a lot of the information that you need to gather for it, it still hasn't been gathered. Like I'm working with a, a software company now, or we're going to help very large supply chains gather all their information put into a single database so that they can and have a dashboard. Mm-hmm. They don't have that information. But then second is, in China, ESG, as in terms of how it was used, it wasn't there. Chinese investors, Chinese regulators, Chinese stock exchanges aren't asking for this. It's the Western groups that are right now. They try and recycle as much as they could for local reporting because no one really valued it locally. So just make it easy. Just do the basics as a starting point until you start getting more requests from regulators, from consumers, from industry associations, from your stock exchange, from whatever. And then you start to see the leveling up. Now, the leaders take a totally different approach. They localize everything. They report everything locally. And then they bring in a little bit of global. And then at the global level, they bring in very difficult integration of global reality. I guess what I was trying to get to is, when, you know, there were certain topics around diversity. Sure. On in- inclusivity. Sure. Whenever you talk about, you know, ESG, you're talking about um, making sure the supply chain is green. Right. That the company that's manufacturing said product is planting X number of trees. Sure. That it's reporting on water usage. That you know the energy that's that's used within the you know the fabrication of a product. It's green energy. So how much of that sort of cascades into this country, and and how much of that do you consult and advise clients on? Because I would imagine not all of it's really applicable. It all has its measure of application, and I'd say it's becoming more and more important here. Like being a good brand in China. When it comes to responsibility, sustainability, it's environmental, it's social, it's a little less governance right now. I was talking with an athletic apparel company, and they want to be sustainable. And I kept talking about their social footprint as being non-existent. Like, they weren't doing anything. And they were doing social in the factories, and they wanted to do environmental. They wanted to really put forward the environmental footprint of their, their materials and try and sell the sustainable shoe or textiles or whatever. And I was like, look, look at Starbucks. They do environmental, they do social, they do it all, and they do it constantly. They over-communicate everything. And what Chinese consumers and Chinese citizens, I think, over-index on is on the social performance of companies. Like if you think of like Starbucks was offering health insurance to the families of their baristas eight years ago, nine years ago. And they, even more, I was, was in Beijing when they started. That. In Beijing. So, I mean, it was unheard of that you would do that, but they won so many social points because it's like they're solving an actual need that their baristas are actually facing, which is taking care of their elderly. Yeah. Why, is it, why is it so difficult for companies to, to be social and to be active on social? Is it money? Is it commitment? What's oh the God, challenge? It's not money. It, it does not cost much money. And I'll go back to like Ali and I's conversation around the budgets that they will have for an environmental launch versus the actual program. You, if you were to spend $2 million a year in this country on environmental actual work, you would be way ahead of the pack. And you're talking about companies that make billions in profit out of this country. 
It's not money. I think one of it's a little bit of learning how to communicate about taking on some risk when you're communicating. Like when I was talking to one brand that had a, a supply chain issue, I just went back to like Patagonia. I'm like, the one thing that Patagonia does is they're very consistent. They constantly talk and they're constantly saying, we have this problem. And they've been doing that for so many years that when they have a problem, nobody boycotts them. They want to actively help them. But so many brands in China, even if they've been doing 20 years of EHS in their factories, nobody knows about this because they won't talk about it because they view that as a risk. What's EHS? Sorry. Environmental health and um, safety. They have been elevating the lives of factory workers for decades. But you have one factory failure. You have one material failure, like the cotton thing. They get blown apart in the media and their consumers like, oh, yeah, they're evil. They're just here to bubble. But actually... Because they're not communicating, there's a lot of reasons. I'd say they're just afraid to fuck up and 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 make pretty, negative headlines. And also, they didn't view it as important. It wasn't a priority. Selling was a priority. Selling shoes, selling cars, selling buildings—that's the priority. I bet if you went to like 95% of foreign companies that operate in China and have more than a billion dollars in sales, they do not have a CSR or sustainability website. Like the basic. If they do, it's a global program. Oh no, totally right. Right, and it's like yeah, guys. Absolutely. You're doing so much here. You're making so much money here. You have to start showing that you're part of the community here. That yeah. doesn't cost much money, right? Like you're only gonna volunteer in five cities. You're only gonna do ocean cleanups in five cities. You can do so much around your factories. You can do so much storytelling, but you're not. I'd say the second reason why is, no offense to you guys, people outsource too much of their goddamn marketing. They don't know their brand at all. They don't know their consumers. They don't know what they really want. And so when they do these panels and you see these charts, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't really know their consumers very often, and so they don't know how to talk to them. I think that's a big, big problem. No, I, I, oh, I you, totally, can, you can shake your head. <laughs> I totally, um, I totally buy that. It reminds me of a funny story. Now that you've mentioned that, Richard, because back uh, about. I don't know, it must have been, yeah, eight years ago I was on Land Rover business and their sustainability program was uh, for Chinese drivers to accumulate a certain number of miles to achieve a carbon footprint so that we could buy these campfire stoves for people in Somalia. I just loved it. I thought it was so funny. And I always asked them, like, why why are we doing something for China? You know, why can't we do things for the local market? Oh, because, Bryce, the sustainability people are in UK and, and they're not here in China. We yeah. don't have a team. And I was like, God, that's that's ridiculous. Let's try to br- let's put something back into the country. You know, at least at least that people find some meaning to the, it. The other thing is, I don't I don't think that enough brands understand that if you did that, you would stand above and above and beyond and you'd make a lot more money. Above Starbucks and made a lot more money off the all the crises that CCTV kicked their way because the community said, no, they're a good company. I'm thirsty for a Starbucks. For people that don't know that, that was a huge blowback on the famous March 15th. Whatever. They still do April those? 15th. April 15th. Oh, was it April Trust 15th? Yeah. They Zero always trash, it, yeah. trash the brands. That was over the uh, the fact that Starbucks was gouging the price and charging yeah. too much for a cup of coffee. And literally, there was a negative blowback to CCTV to say, hey, I love my Starbucks, and if I want to pay 30 quai for a cup of coffee, that's my fucking business, right? You go to all their stores, they have a community board. You go to their website. You go to their social channels. They are constantly talking. And it's not big things. They're not saving China. They're doing little things every day. And then they do a big program around HR and elderly care health insurance. They get the consumer, they get the country, and they make small investments. And that's what it is. It's an investment. It's not an expense, which is what most people view as sustainability and CSR. I'm going to have to give it up. No, no, no. You're gonna, you've got a lot more to gain. 
How's the mindset of sustainability in China? Chinese people always felt that the government had to make the move. They had to decide that, oh, finally, that we had to separate trash. Are we seeing a change amongst Gen Z and younger people in terms of their awareness of brands that are being responsible? Yes, but, you know, it's, it's all contextual. First off, in Shanghai, it's different than Chengdu. There is no one consumer in China. There's, what, 1.3 billion people? So there's gonna be a, a large spectrum of activity. It also depends upon the times. Air pollution, food safety, cost of education, cost of healthcare, cost of housing remain high across every spectrum of measurement that you could, you could imagine. So no matter if you're in a category that touches one of those things, those are the things they care about. Are polar bears something to make a purchase decision to save? Not the vast majority. However, a growing group of, sure. And so we kind of look at there's different profiles of sustainable consumers. The first one's families, like young families. They view sustainability as something to be defended against for their family. So they protect their child by buying organic, certified, imported, highest quality, and they will spend a 300% premium. It's not about, they will spend the money because they're trying to protect their child. Air filters, water filters. They make real estate choices. They buy different cars. They're, real, they're making real action. The second group that's really clear is the health and wellness community. And that's everything from the yoga groups all the way up from there. Vegans. Vegans. I mean, it, these are the fastest growing categories in China. And it maps to, I mean, COVID helped escalate it. But it was already growing really fast because they're reaching, like, this level of disposable income. They're like, you know, I'm not going to work 996. I'm not going to go out drinking every night. I'm going to start taking care of myself. So you see gyms are up and yoga's up and just wellness in general. Is up. And what they do, walking, running. I mean, running is just off the chart, right? So right. when they do that, then they start making different food choices. When they start getting into communities that are doing different health and food, well, guess what? These pants from X brand, this group is, a, and then they start talking about the environment, the air inside. Like they get really focused on solving tangible issues. And again, just like families, yeah, they spend they spend a lot of money as well. What about um, devices and? You know the 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 chase for mileage and just being prompted every morning on what the AQI index is. All of that surely also affects the choices. I, I I've never measured that, so I won't speak to it. I think, sure, I think it helps some people, and I think in a time of crisis like when we had the air pollution of 2014 to 16, yes, we those little things certainly help right? those help for sure because everyone's checking the aqi and part of the weather right but you know again there's so many different types of people and the luxury group right now the fastest growing segments for all luxury brands is sustainability they want uh leather free they want vegan they want you know certified xyz and you're starting to see a lot of brands from i mean I, i've gone to several curing events lately I've seen you at several. Yeah, right. Like I, I'm on their list now. I'm so happy. They're a great example of how a brand can make real investments. So they own, they're they're basically a brand house or a portfolio of luxury brands. Maison. You know, they're well above me because I'm a hoodie and t-shirt kind of guy. But when you go there, I've, I've been to several other sustainability events. I've talked to their sustainability innovation people. They've made over, I think it's 200 investments into small and medium-sized startups whose entire focus is sustainability. Materials, process, everything. With circularity, 
you know, so using mushrooms, the water filtration technologies, dyeing technologies, they're investing into, and then they buy from those companies, those services. And because the chair actively says, we need to, as a industry, solve these problems of textile waste, be it in the supply chain or by the consumer, and the consumers are rewarding them. Now, they have different ranges, and some of those ranges are very mass market, some are very high-end, but what you're seeing is the high-end, they command a premium because now the luxury group of people, those consumers use sustainability as like identifier. That's right. Right. It's always common amongst luxury brands that you have to have a uh, specific story behind or a, a product story that makes yeah. makes it worth the price that you're paying. So you could easily see the transformation between how the how the spirits are made or the leather crafted to something that could be more sustainability related in terms of the product the product benefits that that are achieved through through the development of the product. Hi, Ali and I hope you enjoy Shanghai Zhan, the only marketing podcast coming to you from China. Now you can help support Shanghai Zhan by becoming a patron. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help support all the great marketing content that you hear on Shanghai Zhan. Simply go to our website, zhanstation.com. That's Z-H-A-N station.com and click on the patron link at the bottom of the site. You can also go directly to patreon.com slash shanghaizan. That's p-a-t-r-o-e-n dot com slash shanghaizan. Thanks. We appreciate your support. The executives and the brand owners and supply chain, as, as these executives get one more concerned about sustainability themselves, and more up to speed on what's happening, you're starting to see much better approaches to, to how the business does it. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, everyone gave to the same NGOs for the same thing. We're gonna do a water, we're gonna do tree planting, whatever. Roots and shoots. Roots and shoots, whatever it was, right? <laughs> it was just like these themes because they were easy and you were just trying to do the basic. And look, hands-on is just like Roots and Shoots and many others in that we were like the easy one to talk to because we had it all worked out. But did volunteering, does tree planting, does something, something does it map to the problem that your brand is either creating, exposed to, or has the opportunity to solve? When you can reach that as an executive saying, we can do that, mm. you're starting to see like alcohol brands do water and agriculture products or projects and luxury brands doing other things. And they're mapping right back to their actual value chain. Richard, could you give a couple examples of some of the programs that Hands-On has done? One I'll share is UPS, you know, global delivery parcel company. Uh, we manage a road code program for China, which is road safety. Been doing that for I think, six, seven years now. Worked with tens of thousands of students and now have an online platform that's hopefully going to engage many others. But honestly, every year we have like 75 companies that want to do episodic volunteering. And so they'll go out to beaches, to schools, elderly care centers, and some companies will do it once and be like, all right, we got the t-shirt in the picture. Thank you very much. And others will be like, we're going every single week arrange. But you know, we have these these high line programs where like Cisco will have, you know, they work with women in tech. We have some others in, in the tech space that, that align to that. Uh, we've done some really cool elderly tech training stuff as well uh, with different technology companies. You know, that's that's the work that we do at hands on. Collective is much more about the supply chain. So working with uh, athletic apparel companies, construction material companies on 
you know, where does their stuff go before it hits the landfill? And what's a better, what, how can we address that in a better fashion? Where does stuff go before it hits the landfill? Well, so, I mean, this is the interesting thing is that you mentioned actually the, the government and their, the changing of the waste bucket colors and some, some advertising. Like China did a really good job three years ago, or Shanghai did a really good job three years ago of educating their population, doing a complete household waste separation. The reality is the best part of that was separating food waste from everything else. Because food waste, like one, it would contaminate all the other wastes, so they couldn't be reused, which I'll talk about in a second. But second, it allowed the city to capture the food waste divert it away from the informal sector which would send it out to the farms because a lot of the food waste from the cities would go out to the farms historically nothing wrong with that we've done that in all of our countries because it's a cheap and easy way to feed our animals and safe until you start feeding pork to pigs and still you start having all kinds of medicines and plastics and stuff inside that food waste that reaches the animal as well like and so china said okay or shanghai now more China because the lessons are being spread across the country. They diverted that and now they have a bunch of investments and different processes for managing all that food waste. And that's phenomenal. But when it comes to like say cardboard boxes and aluminum and the, the basics that we all know and grew up with as you need to recycle, China never had a problem with that. In Shanghai, you could have up to 95% capture and reuse to factory rates for most of these materials. And we followed them for like... That's incredible. What, what would it be like in the U.S.? Well, if you don't count sending it to China, 5%. Because the reality is for most of the Western recycling schemes, you put it in your green bin in San Francisco or London or wherever, it would be sent to China or to Asia for processing. But China's kind of re rejecting a lot of the China's recyclable waste all of it. as well. No? All of it now. At the end of this year, will be the last okay. year of the four-year phase where they ban all importation of recycled materials. And why would they do that? That's because they have too much of their own. Well, there's several reasons. One is just the, the quality of the stuff that was being sent over right. was garbage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no pun intended. They would say the standard was 95% purity of plastic, of paper, of material. And they would get like 30% because... Like in the UK, for example, you could put a container full of just garbage and call it 100% recycled if you send it to China. But if you recycle it locally, it'll only be 10, 30, 10 20, 30% valuable recyclables. They would just pack it full of garbage and get the credits for it. So what's happening now in the U.S. if, if they can't export the garbage to other countries? They just uh, they stop they, burn it? they stop recycling programs. They bury it. They burn it in America. But, you know, in Shanghai, are they 80-ish? They find ship, other countries as well to ship it out to. Right? They're trying. Like, Eastern Europe's kind of taking a bunch of EU stuff. But the reality is that, Malaysia like, in Missouri, where I'm from, a lot of, the, a lot of the, the city programs stopped because it costs so much money, and they can't make money by selling it anymore. Mm. So it's more or less psychological that you have to separate your trash right. in the U.S. because it ends up it being feels combined good. together at the it end. Feels, because we have no manufacturing industry. We don't have that scale. So in Shanghai, of the 80-ish shipments that we followed, only two left the city limits, and both went to Joshing because they're wood. Unbelievable, right? They, Did you get that? It all goes into factories <laughs> in China, in Shanghai. So the circular economy of Shanghai is damn near 100. percent Crazy. And within 250 kilometers, it's 100 percent mm -hmm. because they manufacture things here, right? So they need the metal, they need the plastic, they need the paper and pulp. They need like they don't need food waste, right? That's a whole different system. And electronics is its own system as well. So there's basically three recycling systems. There's general goods for metals, plastics, and paper. 
Then there's an exclusive one for electronics. There's an exclusive one for food. That's a question I had, Richard, as being an American. And I don't know if you ever get this sometimes when you're asked about China's one and two with the U.S. as being the, the greatest polluter. Are you more optimistic about China than the U.S. in the context of how they're moving towards a more sustainable environment? Or do you think that China still has a long ways to go? No matter what, China has a long way to go. They have a lot of intention. They have a lot of vision. They have a lot of capacity, but there is a long way to go. I mean, urbanization, no matter how you do it, it's a challenge to call it sustainable, right? Like, no matter what you try and do, you bring someone into the city, they're consuming six to times eight the amount of energy, they're consuming six times the amount of pork, they're consuming a multiple of water. Like, you can't call that sustainable. You can call it as sustainable, as efficient, as whatever is possible. But there's a lot of problems with how China's developed. And they recognize them, and they're making shifts. So the whole carbon energy shift, one, that's an energy supply issue. they got to get off coal or get down on coal. I forget what they call it, sliding down or scaling down now. But the bigger problem for me is actually not the, the supply side, it's the demand side. These buildings have been coded in a way that are just very inefficient. And I have a friend who, he was working in another building on Huai High Road. It wasn't a lead, lead building, just a normal, but it was, it was a nice building. Was, so lead is the, it's, it's basically a sustainability standard from silver, bronze, and gold. Or, right. no, sorry, yeah, it's silver, a gold, platinum. It's a certification that you get for being energy efficient. It's by design, it's not they by have, operation. They have a certificate down the lobby of That's this, building. this building. Yeah, yeah, yeah so this right. one's a platinum building, right? It's just by design, not by operation. Now. This building, it's another Hong Kong designed, built building. Now, it was turned over many years ago, but as it was built and designed, it wasn't very efficient. Beautiful glass, higher order than the average local Chinese developer at the time, but that's changed. A friend of mine took a full floor. He moved the HVAC, the air conditioning from the ceiling to the floor. He changed the lighting from three meters up to top of the desk, put in 40% green walls, and he did a few other things. So he invested about an extra $250,000, $300,000. And just with that, oh, he did window film as well. Just with that, he dropped his energy use 60% off the average tenant in the rest of the building. Wow. So imagine with that little amount of money, you could do that with all these offices much more efficiently if it was a government Mandate. uh, mandated thing and you could get real scale out of it. Those are things that need to be done. And mm. Then you need to talk about food waste and food loss. Like we all know that we all waste 40% of our food. Sometimes we hate bananas. I mean, I always say we always hate bananas, but we lose 40 to 60% of our food That's before cool. it even gets to us. It's lost on the farm. It's lost in distribution. It's lost in consolidation. It's lost in processing. Some of that is the it's ugly stuff. At, uh, it's, it's left at the retailer as well. A lot of times it's left at the retail. Sold, yeah. Right. So it's, some of it's ugly. Some of it's just poorly stored. Some of it's just, it's bad quality, but we lose a lot there. Well, China has a lot of interesting programs happening there with drones and precision farming and logistics that are gonna, they're gonna really condense that problem. And that's gonna save water. That's gonna save energy. That's gonna save all kinds of stuff. So it has a long way to go. And what I, I guess what I like about it is that at least they recognize that. At least they're not trying to fool themselves otherwise. We're in the US. If there's anything that we're doing, it's just, eh, not my problem. There's no vision at the country level or within the people that anyone can really agree on or even debate. I hate to say it, I'm more optimistic about China and what they're trying to do. So let me, let me rephrase a little bit and say I'm, I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I, they have challenges. 
why I'm more optimistic about China than say about other countries, they're solving real problems here. Now, if I go to Sioux Falls, if I go back to Lao Jia, as it were, you talk to farmers, they are solving real problems around water and yield and climate change. They see it, they see it. And God, they just had the big tornadoes, but last year in Iowa, they had the huge inland hurricane for Christ's sake. Like they understand weather and climate and they're worried about that, but are they worried about the same thing that the left coast is for the same reasons? No, they're not trying to save polar bears in the middle of the country. They're trying to save their crops. And I think because they're solving a tangible issue, that for me, just like in China, gives it more potential to be solved more potential for innovators to come in and not just get money, but to say like, this is the business model. This is the transition. This is why you're benefiting. A lot of sustainability consultants and NGOs, they, they sell a story about a future that we all share and hope that we're all on board. I struggle with that, not because I don't, not because it shouldn't work. I mean, God, it should, right? Like we should all buy into that. But the reality is that you still have to solve a tangible problem for people. Like right now, we have half half of the United States doesn't believe that COVID's a problem enough to wear a face mask. And that's a direct threat to their life. How are you gonna convince them to save a polar bear? This is not gonna happen, but in China, you don't have that same pushback. Ultimately, the way that progress can be made is you have to find a way that it directly hits them, hook them, and bring them along. And maybe ignore some of the bigger issues until they're at the next stage. But in the, in, the, in the West, we really like to believe they're gonna go all whole hog from the first round. It's like, no, it's, people got a lot of things to worry about right now. How can you use each one of those as a way to bring people together that we need to fix a system that's breaking instead of an issue that's a problem? It, it's just a different approach. I've got a quick question on that one. So mm. if we're talking about fixing systems and solving problems. Yep. Um, one of the other things that you also do, besides creating awareness around sustainability, is to start around uh, social innovation. Yeah. Um, what does that mean and what does that entail and how, how are you helping companies with anything it? anything you want to mean, Ali? Look, I mean, social innovation, I, I've started, like you've heard of the term social entrepreneurs. Um, I, I like the term mission driven more than anything else. Like you're just as an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, I focus more on entrepreneurs, you are, as a nonprofit or for-profit leader, founder, trying to solve a tangible problem. And innovation can come through all kinds of things, technology, business model, whatever. I do find that in Asia, there's a lot more practicality to the innovations I'm seeing and a lot more scalability to the business models that are being thrown out there. And that's a function of the market, obviously, but that's also a function of the, the tangibility of the problem that we're facing. And so like, if you look at plant-based and vegetarianism, I mean, the numbers are just off the chart in Asia and particularly Hong Kong and Ch mainland China. Like they're doing really well. The brands are growing really quickly. If you look at air filters and different types of um, like bike sharing and things like that going crazy right now. And why this is exciting is one, it's proving that these business models for profit or non have sustainability, have growth, have scale, and that's attracting money and that's attracting attention. And that's bringing consumers on into a new way, not because they're sacrificing an old way, but because they're excited by the new way. Now, of course, maintaining that is gonna be a challenge for a lot of people. And we're seeing that in vegan plant-based products right now. Like there's a bit of exhaustion there. Um, there's a lot of competition. There's been some shitty products. There hasn't been enough, you know, like application locally. You know, new energy vehicles as well. You've yeah. got a number of cars, but it's always yeah. gonna be a little bit of consolidation towards the end, which car 
kind and of lasts. You know, we if you if you strip out the products just and separate themselves from, you know, just on their own, it's it's kind of an unfair thing to do. Like, as pork and chicken and fish get more expensive, these plant-based alternatives are going to appear much more reasonable. And those who can't afford those meats but they want the protein from bean-based product, they're going to start buying them. And we've seen that between when organics and then you know NPK, you know GMO type. That that agriculture was when they were rising. When they saw like the floods and things like that, and they saw drought. You know, if there was any shock to the system in terms of NPK as oil went up and organics stayed the same, well, guess what? People just shifted to organics because it's the same price, if not cheaper. Mm-hmm. And I think the role of economics and sustainability is a huge thing here because things are. I mean, inflation in the states is one thing, but in China, it's much higher. You know, the, what the the price of spinach was like thirty percent last quarter. It's more expensive That's per cool. kilo than pork right now. Well, okay, I know so you're, you're going to start buying very different, and you're going to start buying less and more intentional what I need for today. But also, if you're trying to eat really healthy, you're going to start making very different decisions. What do you think the rest of the world can learn from China in the context of sustainability? I think there's a few things. One is solve a real problem. And when you do, and you wrap a common vision around it, it's much easier to make progress. I think the role of government is also important. What I like about what I see here is they study the problem, they create a vision for how, what the outcome should be. They trial it 20 different ways across different cities. They learn the lessons and they, they apply it across. And as part of that, they engage an ecosystem of business, media, consumers, individuals to participate in different ways. It's not a single campaign for everybody. And so that framework allows it, it, it's a little bit easier for people to take action. On the same side, because they're very clear about what they want to take care of, they're also very clear about what they don't want to participate in. And that allows for the, the consumer here to be much more vocal about what they want and that puts a lot more pressure on brands. Where in the States, brands can really, they, 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 I think they have more power than they do here. I think brands have a lot less power. I, I could be totally wrong in that, but I just feel like brands are much more willing to respond to things here versus in the States, it's much more virtue signaling mm-hmm. and then it kind of falls off over time. But here they really have to fix things, otherwise they lose the market. And so I think that's another thing is like, if you can solve problems of your consumers and of your communities, you can take a leadership role in many different ways. And that long-term is important. I think the third thing is just scale. Like if you can do it in China, you can do it anywhere. They have every economy, every geography, every ecosystem, every consumer type, every supply chain problem that we have in the world. I'm, I'm American yeah. and I spent a year back home last year. I have to say that I'm now thinking about how to apply the tools I've learned here to take back home. Because the issues of poverty, of food, of energy, they, they exist there. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, I've been here for so long, I don't know what's missing sometimes, but I think there's a real opportunity to take some of the lessons that we've learned here back to our home countries and actually have a, a bigger impact than had we just stayed in our own countries. Like just to learn from the experience of being here. And I think every, every place I've traveled has the potential what I believe it should be realized. And I think that there's a way to take some of these lessons back home and and get that done. Because I think in the States, we have great innovators. We, we do have a great market. We do have the potential for people to do real good. It's just not being tapped into right now in a very constructive way. Basically, towards the end of the show, sure. we do something called the A-B test. 
brain. If you've, if, you, if you've been on the show, A is, A is short for Ali and B is short for Bryce. Ah, okay. um, so I'm going to just shoot two words at you. Um, answer with whatever comes first to your mind, whichever of the two. Uh, polar bears, pandas. Polar bears. Mars, Earth. Earth. Fossil or electric? Electric. Humans or mammals? Aren't we a bit of both? I don't know. What do you want? What like do you want? Hybrids. What, what do you want to see exist human. on this world? Human. All right, fine. All the animals are going. Um, leather or pleather? Let's go pleather. Jesus. Revolutions or evolutions? Evolutions. Hot or cold? Cold. One degree, three degrees. Better be one. <laughs> Food or famine? Food. DD or drive? Scooter. Oh, that's good. Um, Everyone's choosing scooter. Ah, that's good. That's a good, good sign. Um, what type of uh, what do you like? What do you prefer? Beaches or forests? California. Get both. It's a little bit both. Private jets or <laughs> bike rentals? Never ridden either. Scooter. Scooter. All right. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Richard. Thank you very much. That was thank you. incredibly interesting and insightful. Thank you. Appreciate and I'd like it. to thank everyone listening. And thank you for joining us for today's episode on sustainability and social innovation with Richard Brewbreaker from Collective Responsibility. Join us next week for another exciting show as we investigate sea beauty in China. Letter C beauty. And until then, have a great day.